All right, all right. Welcome everyone to episode 56, live from my drum room. Um, got a great show today. Um, this is part three of Remembering Charlie Watts. Um, you Hopefully you've seen parts one and two. I've had some tremendous guests on both of those shows, and I've got some really great guys today with me uh, in the waiting room right now. And hopefully a couple more are going to join sort of uh, in progress, but if not, you won't be disappointed with today's guests who are Simon Kirk, the legendary Simon Kirk from Bad Company and Free, uh, my old buddy Greg Bissonette, Ringo Starr's um, current drummer, been his drummer for the past 13 years, and uh, another old buddy, Steve Gorman of the Black Crows, and uh, Trigger Hippie, and and uh, you know, a million other things. So they're uh, waiting in the, in, the, uh, in the green room. But uh, thank you for tuning in. I do want to mention uh, to check out all these other episodes on my YouTube channel and to subscribe. I appreciate that. And what else can I tell you? Um, also available as, as podcasts. And also check out the episode I did last week with Richard King, who uh, was a friend of Charlie's as well and you know provided a lot of Charlie's vintage drum equipment throughout the years. And, uh, and that was a great episode too. And we're going to do a part two uh, of that uh, part of it, you know, Charlie's equipment and talking about Charlie's drums. But this is part three of remembering Charlie with uh, a whole bunch of his friends. So thanks for joining. And without further ado, I'm going to welcome my esteemed guests. Uh, let's see, I'm going to admit them all at the same time. So welcome Simon Kirk, Steve Gorman, and Greg Bissonette. Okay, gents, yeah. we are, uh, all right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, guys. Hey, Johnny. Thanks for joining. Hi, Greg. <laughs> Simon, Thanks Steve. Yeah, Thrilled thank you for here. being here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying, just by coincidence, you know, when we set this date up a couple of weeks ago, I didn't realize it, but... Um, Five years ago today, I had this amazing uh, memory or day with Charlie. They played a private show for the New England Patriots football team, uh, the owner, Bob Kraft, at Gillette Stadium. And it was like 200 people invited. They had a tent midfield, and uh, Charlie invited me out to the show. And it was, uh, you guys know from doing private shows, it's a whole different world as far as um, just I, you know, the sort of looseness of it, I guess you could say, and uh, it's it's one of my best memories of spending time with Charlie because he was just so chill and relaxed, and uh, you know there was there was sort of uh, no demands on his time, so to speak. So he, I kept thinking, I you know I was in his way and I should leave his dressing room and and let him get ready for the show, and he's and he's like, I've got nothing to do. You you don't have to go. <laughs> he loved you, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I loved him too. He was, he was so amazing. But um, anyway, I, I put something up on Facebook because it just happened to be the same day five years ago. And wow. well, I, I, the last time I saw Charlie, I, it was all, I was like, I'm a friend of John to Christopher's, you know, it's one of those, you got to throw your name out and then suddenly it's all cool. <laughs> oh, that's, that's too funny. Uh, and I and I was saying uh, before we started recording that I, I Simon, I had the honor of meeting you 
nine years ago, we just were saying at a stone show in New Jersey. And, uh, right. and I knew you guys were, were old friends. And I'd, I'd love to hear the history of you guys because I just the other day downloaded the super deluxe version of tattoo. You uh -huh. came up 40 years ago. That's and yeah. That's really when I, I mean, I, I obviously known, uh, known them because of my relationship with Ronnie. I mean, free and the faces toured together in 71. I, it's a very blurred memory, I have to tell you. Um, but when when Ronnie joined the Stones in '75, you know, you know, um, by osmosis, I became friendly, you know, with with Keith uh, and and Charlie. Um, and of course, I, I've always been a huge fan of Charlie's. Um, and I was a little nervous about him, even though Ronnie was saying, "Look, he's the nicest guy on the planet. He's so quiet, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, but it wasn't until I went over to Paris um, to hang out with Ronnie and when they were doing Tattoo You. And, and Charlie was so nice because immediately when I went into the, the, the studio at sort of two in the morning, that's when they started, mm -hmm. two in the morning, can you believe it? And poor Charlie, you know, he was, he was the, uh, the relatively sober one of the group and um, they would go from two in the morning until two in the afternoon completely at <laughs> odds of what you and me and Greg and Steve are, are used to. But he said, look, I've got some new gear. And I, I must have said somewhere, I, I remember saying in an interview years before, you know, Charlie always used that same lovely old round badge uh, Gretsch kit, which I believe he'd had since 62 or 63. And he never seems to get any new gear. And he said here, and he kind of almost dragged me into the drum room saying, look, I've got some new gear, I've got some new gear. And I'm looking at this kit and saying, what the fuck, Charlie? It's the same bloody kit that you've had for 30 years. This is in, um, I think, 89 or so a little less than 30 years. He said, no, look closely. I've got a new drum head and a new pair of sticks. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and he's serious. I mean, he's dead serious. And I say, oh, great, Charlie. Well, you know, you didn't break the bank. Uh, upgrading your kit very much. And then I see this confetti that's, you know, in all the hoops. And any good drummer uh, like this trio before me likes a, a clean kit because it makes the drums sound great, la, la, la. And Charlie says, oh, no, that's from the, from the dragon that we used to have on the 71 tour spewing confetti, you know, <laughs> during, <laughs> during satisfaction. And it's been there for, for 20, I think 26 years, Simon. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that was yeah, that was my first real intro to Charlie. And then uh, oh, I really yeah. loved the guy. He's a great You guy. know, I, I, it reminds me, his his <laughs> former tech, Chooch, who was with him for... Yeah, uh, Chooch, yeah. Uh, we did some gigs with the Stones in 95. And, you know, that first day I go up to look at the kit, like every drummer ever <laughs> Stones does. You just stand oh, yeah. for it, you know. And his throne, um, the, the the legs and the stand of his throne, there was just this big, wonky, globby <laughs> section. And I looked at it, and Chooch saw me note it, and he goes, that thing, that thing finally fell apart, and Charlie wouldn't let me replace it. I had to get a guy to come up with, like, a soldering gun and a welding mask and <laughs> just fix it as is. You know, he couldn't uh -huh. get a new base to his throne. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm, yeah. You know, I'm like looking at the stadium in Switzerland, going, 
just shouldn't <laughs> pop for the new throne, huh? Okay. All right. Yeah. You know. Uh, but uh, those, I mean, there's so many of those stories and obviously they're all true because everybody's got one about him never changing a damn thing. Yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't that sort of guy. And yet and yet he was quite a prolific spender when it came to clothing. I mean, we all know he was one of the probably the best dressed drummer in history. I mean, you'd have to go back to the, the 30s and 40s to, you know, people like Elvin Jones and, you know, the, the Philly yeah. Joe, when they would wear those wonderful, you know, black tie. Charlie always dressed so beautifully, uh, and even his stage clothes were just these sort of pale slacks and grey uh, T-shirt. But off stage, he dressed so beautifully. And cards. And I've got a great story that Ronnie told me, and I, I wish I could have been there, but when he... Uh, he visited Charlie, stayed for a couple of nights in Charlie's house in the west west country of, of England. And halfway through the dinner, Charlie said, oh, I've got a new car. And, and Ronnie said, well, oh, great. Well, let's go and see it, Charlie. All right. So after dessert, Charlie disappeared and he came back down about 10 minutes later, dressed in this sort of driving outfit from the 30s with gauntlets and buttons down, you know, like a double fronted chauffeur's outfit almost. And he said, well, come on then. So they, they go through the house and into the garage and there's this beautiful black Lagonda. It was in like 1938 Lagonda, beautiful. So they all get in it and they sit there looking at the smelling the leather and looking at the fascia and the whole thing. And Ronnie says, well, come on then, Charlie, let's go. And Charlie says, oh, I can't drive. <laughs> I just bought it because I like it. So... They just sat there making these sort of brum brum sounds. And then after 10 minutes, they got out and went back and had dessert. But, <laughs> but he got dressed up to show him. You dressed yeah. up to show him, Greg. Yes. That was Charlie. Oh. Uh, I've heard I've heard stories like that, Simon. Yeah. I've that that he would go out and just and sometimes just by himself just sit in the car and just feel like oh. he was back in 1937 you know okay. just yeah yeah I've, I've heard that it's it's wasn't he, was, he deep into buying horses as well his yeah, wife his, yeah they they bought arabian horses and, and bred them and there's a great shot i believe from vanity fair from about 20 years ago <laughs> charlie he said we had these fucking horses in the living room <laughs> these two beautiful white arabian must whatever you call them i don't know geldings he said everything was great until they started firing away with, with these strobes. And then they just dumped a you know, huge horse turd on oh the person. On the person. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Now, that was Shirley, not Charlie, but uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But, uh, she didn't really come out on the road. You've you got to remember that Charlie was, by his own accounts, totally, totally faithful, unlike other members of that band, which shall remain uh, anonymous. But he was totally faithful. He was the first one to be married. I believe he was the oldest of the band. He was born in 1940, uh, 41. So he was the oldest. And, you know, and all the others in the band adored him. I mean, I've never heard a bad word said about Charlie. And, and in conversations with Keith, who doesn't suffer fools gladly, uh, Mick, I mean, obviously Ronnie, because they were only separated by a day. Their birthdays were only a day apart. But Ronnie was born in 47. They all adored uh, Charlie because he was so patient, you know. He says to me one day, he says, I've got the world record for holding a piss. 
And I went, well, that, that got my attention. He said, yeah, well, 18 hours. And they were doing the tattoo album, and of course, you know, they didn't get started till sort of dawn. And Charlie's sitting there, always the first one behind the kit, twiddling his sticks. He could do yeah. that, Greg, like you do so well. He yeah. could do all that. He, I can't I do it with both hands. I could never do that. He did it while talking, you know. And he sat there for 18 hours and he said, I every time I got up to go for a piss, Mick would say, one, two, three, four. <laughs> so eventually, you know, Mick went out to do something. Charlie scurries away to the uh, to the toilet. And Mick walks in and says, Where's the fucking drummer? Oh no. <laughs> oh, come on. 18 hours. <laughs> oh man. Uh, oh Charlie. Uh, well, Simon, yeah. I have to tell you. So, uh, on that that deluxe version of uh, of Tattoo You that that was just released, there's mm. a version of Start Me Up, which was called Never Stop. It yeah. started off as a as a reggae song. Yeah. And sure enough, now you're listed as playing percussion on it. Yeah, I still get checks. <laughs> I was getting all these checks from SAG AFTRA, and. Um, I, I couldn't figure out for the life of me, you know, and being an honest gentleman, uh, you know, I started, I called SAG after, I said, look, I'm keep, I keep getting these checks. And they said, well, yeah, it's a recording session in Paris, uh, the Warner Pathé Studios at the Rolling Stones. And I remember playing congas. You know, I'm a very basic conga player, but Charlie said, listen, why don't you, you know, play congas on this? And I didn't even know what the song was, John, quite honestly. Oh, my but it, it ended up being... Um, an alternate version of start me up and it was such a yeah. simple pattern but uh no i i cashed the checks very quickly i can assure yeah. you <laughs> Simon, i always thought you played the claves on all right now but you told me that was paul rogers paul rogers absolutely i remember it to this day yeah you were paul. just sitting out there in front of you clicking the claves huh? i was doing uh i think i was playing maracas and paul's doing the claves uh paul's a very good drummer by the way Paul oh, is, is that a, right? It's a very good, great, great feel, great, uh, great tempo and feel. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, we. Yeah. Well, you're wow. you're a very good singer, Simon. You I gotta are. say, I've I've seen you sing in Ringo's All Star Band, and yeah, you're yeah. a fine singer. Thank you, thank you. I as, try. Yeah, yeah. As as is young Greg over there too. Oh, did your solo Hooper. albums, Simon? Where uh, you did start a song. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What the hell? It's, you know, just because I used it 50 years ago, it doesn't mean that's the coolest drum ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You own that. But I, I want to I wanted to talk, talk for a moment. You know, back in the day when, when I was coming up, obviously I was a generation behind the stones, and I'd never seen a drummer play with the jazz grip. Mm. It was always the match, you know, the searches, Dave Clark Five, Jerry and the Pacemaker. No one played with this jazz grip. And I'm trying to remember the first song I ever heard of the Stones. We, we, there was a, a TV program called Thank Your Lucky Stars. And it was um, the, the Stones came on and uh, Charlie was doing, dunk, 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 you know, the Bo Diddley beat. Oh, yeah. Not Fade Away, um, probably. And, yeah. And I've never, never seen that beat. But he was leaning over to his right, obviously, because he's a right-handed player, playing the floor tom. And he had this weird, I've never seen this jazz grip before. And and I don't think he ever changed. It, 
Maybe he got tired during a session or two. He might have switched a match. But every time I ever saw him, and I'm sure Greg and Steve would agree, he played that match grip, um, uh, the, the jazz grip. And yeah. he got that wonderful slap. He, I mean, his backbeat, um, and I've made a note of Harlem Shuffle. You listen to the snare on Harlem Shuffle. It's a mile wide. It's yeah, yeah. Because he hit it dead center, no rim shots. Uh, he wasn't even an inch off the dead center. And you look at his snare head, it had that sort of gray, you know, two-inch <laughs> diameter yeah. mark where Charlie just hit it dead center every time. His backbeat was second to none, really. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that song, and, and <clears throat> I hope Charlie will forgive me for saying this. When that record came out in the 80s, I was mm. kind of like, uh, you know, being a the fan that I was, I didn't I didn't dig that record a whole lot. I just kind of felt like it 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 wasn't. Well, it was sort a cover. Of, yeah, you know, yeah. It was a cover, and the Stones were guilty in inverted commas of of tipping their hat to their you know their influences, yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Sure. I never thought it should have been a single. Uh, quite honestly, it was a great album track, but it, you know it was uh, it became this. Uh, you know, one of their hits. Uh, yeah, even yeah. Song. Well, you know, after after Charlie passed away, they were playing the Rolling Stones had their own channel on Sirius um, XM radio. You know, the satellite station or uh, radio network had a devoted Stones channel oh. for a few, couple of weeks, like a limited time. And they were playing that song a lot. They were sort of looping a lot of the same songs. But I heard mm -hmm. that song a lot. And I, I kind of went, what was I thinking for that exact reason you said, Simon? I'm like, man, his fucking backbeat is just ridiculous in this song. Like, how did I, how did I overlook that and and think that it? Maybe it was the video that I saw that I thought seemed a little cheesy or something in the '80s. You know what I mean? But it, but it's also, such. A, I mean, he never really. You, I mean, Greg. I mean, he. You bring his your left hand back, twenty four, thirty six inches to deliver. I mean, you're you're a powerful drummer. I'm a powerful drummer. I know you are, Steve. But Charlie, super powerful, yeah. Yeah, I mean Charlie. I mean, it barely went past his nose. Right. Yeah, and he yeah, just right. flipped it. This, this the Bruce whack. Lee one-inch punch thing, you know. Yeah, the Bruce Lee. <laughs> oh, he yeah. never hit the rim shots. It was it really always is, in the middle, um, right? When you yeah. saw him, Simon. Say again. Uh, you he never hit rim shots off the, you know, the middle rim and the. It was always no. The it always dead center. I mean, I, he could have done if he wanted. He just had right. that that eccentric. And I saw him at a private event at the Hard Rock in Vegas. We all went out there. Um, and you're you're right, John. It, it's obviously you know we've all done corporate events, and and there are pluses and minuses. The the plus was they got two and a half million dollars cash, and they had Robin <laughs> Williams opening for them. That was fun. <laughs> Uh, the, the, I mean, the downside was there were 300 drunken, uh, I think it was Dell computers or one of those internet uh, firms, and they didn't go on till sort of midnight. So everyone was well out of it. And, um, I, they couldn't care two hoots that the stones were on stage, but yeah, for an hour and a half and they played a stripped down set, I got to see the stones up close and personal. And I saw Charlie from about 20 feet away as opposed to the stadium gigs where not only is he only an inch high but his backbeat is three seconds after he's hit the drum right and you know yeah. that's so annoying <laughs> oh it is uh, yeah but to be yeah. able to see charlie 
so uh, up close. Um, it, it, it was it was wonderful, and he barely broke a sweat. I don't think I ever saw him sweat. Whereas I sweat buckets after three songs. He just had this very implacable way of playing, and also the famous do do back do do you know lifting up of the right hand. Uh, and I said, where the fuck did that come from? He says, oh Keith, he writes these bloody fast songs. And I can't keep up. He did this song Shattered. Do, 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 shattered, shattered. Do, do. And it's the only way I could keep up. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay. It works. I mean, you know, I mean, I, when in 95, again, you know, we did a, a European tour with them and, and, and we got to stand right behind him. There was a black scrim that from the audience just was like a black wall. But if you were behind it, you could look right out and see everything. You know, it was almost like a two-sided mirror the way it worked. Yeah. Um, and so we were standing, you know, Pierre, Keith Tech and Chooch were like, yeah, come up tonight, you know, a couple different nights and we'd be five feet behind his kit. I mean, right behind him. Oh, and man. I remember the first time doing that, it was, I, I, it was like when you see someone who's seven feet tall, like it just doesn't compute right away. Like <laughs> yeah. and, and watching the, the ferocity of his yes. play. I mean, I've been, a, I've listened to Stones records my whole life. I've, I've taken everything I could from Charlie. I've done, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a student of, of those records and his playing and all that. And I was not prepared for what it was like to be so close to him. Cause as you said, he's, First of all, mild mannered. He's tiny. Well, I'm six three. He looks like I could just throw him over my shoulder, you know, that, <laughs> twice. Good, yeah. And and like you said, that stick is hitting the dead center of that drum. You can see the marks. There's just basically one real mark because right. that's all he ever hits. Right. And it it you know, and I am a I, I hit really hard, but that changed everything. I mean, I literally approached drumming differently from that day forward, hmm. and it was more about just efficiency with you know how do i how do i play as hard but with but just more focused you know it really I, I i said then that bruce lee one inch punch thing it was right. just this phenomenal uh, you know i'm not surprised he waited 18 hours to take a leak because all i kept coming away with was the fo it was like watching a guy play chess like he was so there he was so completely present and he had to be because alive especially those songs are flying yeah. You know, because yeah. Mick doesn't want to groove. He wants to rock and he wants to get 80,000 people excited and they have to be up tempo. And I just, yeah. it, it really, there's just no way to, and the whole band sounds like a tornado, but it was Charlie. I mean, it was like that guy. Yeah. And I'm standing there going, how on earth is this guy doing what he's doing? Right. Besides, the right hand thing is amazing that you just told us because if that really came out, like you said, of him just wanting a break and his his hand was getting tired, that's exactly what you told me about how you came up with the 40th take on All Right Now playing quarter notes. I said, what a cheat. Yeah. Like, yeah, quarter notes. You said, we did so many takes, I just wanted a break, right? Well, yeah. I the, didn't know that. I wow. mean, we could do a little sidebar here, but I, I found that playing eight – when I, when I initially played all right now, after not only was it tiring after four or five takes, but it was a different groove. It was more of a, a pressure type groove. Dun, 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 mm -hmm. Whereas if you do, bom, 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 it just swings, it's, it swaggers a little more. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's why 
uh, it morphed into that four on the on the hi hats. And now, someone told me that Charlie uh, borrowed this particular style way back in the late sixties from Jim Keltner, where he lifted the mm. right hand on the two. You know, uh, yeah. I I don't know. I I just remember Charlie telling me that when Keith wrote Shattered, um, that that's in, in order to keep up. That's what he did. I might be wrong, but it, 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 and I do it now. I mean, if I'm if I'm playing a really fast tempo, and it's quite easy to do. We're pretty coordinated, us drummers. Yeah. But um, it's it's the Charlie Watts uh, handoff. That's what I yeah. call it. It's, I saw uh, Steve Jordan play last week with. with oh yeah, and he he really honored Charlie with that. He really oh. did that. Where did you see him? I saw him at the SoFi Stadium where the Rams play. My friend that I went to high school and college with and was in Maynard Ferguson's oh, back, which has been playing Tim. sax with them for about the last 25 years, Tim Reese. And he got uh, my son and I, right. my daughter and I, had tickets and we hung out and it was so cool. And Tim told me, I didn't know this, Tim said that when when uh, Keith was putting together the expensive winos, Charlie had said, you know, who'd be a great drummer for your band is Steve Jordan. Wow, yeah. that's right. He was also, you know, need, uh, needing a sub. He he yeah. also threw in Steve's name again. He was the perfect guy to do it because he played so much with Keith. And yeah, true, yeah. true. Anyway, it was I a think great show. And the whole beginning was a great uh, memorial to Charlie. It was on the big screen. Oh, I got I'm yeah. seeing them in Atlanta. Uh, November the 11th. I, I, I can't wait. I oh, that's fantastic. You know, fantastic. I, you know what? Great. I'm gonna I'm running down for that one too. I'm so excited. Oh, are you gonna be in Atlanta? Yeah, yeah, I missed oh. him in Asheville. I couldn't. I was out of town, so uh, you know when when it was coming up, I looked at the schedule. So I'm going to get down to Atlanta. World uh, Series and the Stones, Steve. Wow, you guys are making me feel like a like a schmuck. I I, <laughs> I uh, lights every day, Johnny from Logan. I know, I know, I know. Are you up in Boston? I'm up in Boston, Simon. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And the closest they they've come so far was Pittsburgh, and uh, uh, I opted not to go to that one and. And Don, you know, Charlie and now Steve Jordan's tech and I stay in touch. And and he said, you know, any show you want to come to, let me know. And and uh, I've just. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Well, you know, now I, I I'm, I'm the odd man out here. I got to really I got to put better. my money where my Wait, mouth I is. Keep on you about this. I know. Well, I was just going to say about the um, couple of quick things about the uh, the hi-hat thing. I've heard the same thing about Keltner. And then I've heard Keltner say that he got it from Levon Helm. Oh. And and it's it seems to be one of these stories that has sort of taken on its its own life. You know what I mean? It's it's an interesting thing. And I know at one point, um, Charlie even, you know, I think he even said something like, "I." Someone asked him about that, and he said, "I don't even know what you're talking about." You know, <laughs> like wow. he he was like not even really acknowledging that he lifts off the four. You know, and um, I but, did it. You know, I played with Bobby Keys. We put a band. Bobby lived here in Nashville, and in yeah. 2011. Uh, in between Stones tours, he was just, he's, I don't know if, if you guys knew Bobby or ever spent any time with him, but, you know, he's just a complete <laughs> character, to to yeah. say the very least. Yeah. And he was getting so frustrated, he'd come home and he'd lose his, he'd lose his lungs. He was like, I got to play when I'm not on the road, you know. And so a few of us guys in town, we put a band together and we went out. Um, Bobby Keys and the Suffering Bastards was what it was called. And it was just... <laughs> And we just played all the songs he'd played on, you know, from The Wanderer, the Dion song when he was a teenager, right. all the way through John Lennon songs. And I mean, everything, you know, his discography's incredible. You can just pick. Yeah. But most of that stuff was Stone songs. 
And so uh-huh. when we were starting to play them, you know, it, it, it was pretty funny. I found myself, uh, you know, you do that. Everybody does the Charlie thing, the right hand up. Just, yeah. you know, if you're going to play bitch or shattered or, or, you know, anything, you just start doing it. Yeah. And it got to the point where I couldn't not do it. It's just the only way to play that, those tunes. Like I didn't, it just didn't feel right. And it wasn't, it's not about consciously trying to do Charlie. It's just, you're trying to do the song, right? You're to make it feel right. And, and it's just, there's just no other way around it. It's a real, I, I don't know of anybody else who has such a simple thing. That's just completely, it, it's indelible. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's all, it's everywhere in that music right. is just that yeah. simple lift. And and he would be the first guy to sort of poo poo it and say, no, yeah. don't, don't focus on that. And I echo John's, uh, you know, uh, comment that probably Charlie was almost embarrassed about point, you know, this being mm-hmm. pointed out. And of course, what what I guess a lot of the younger viewers don't know was that Charlie's real footing was in jazz. Right. You know, that yeah. was his thing. He was a jazz drummer, and and just by, I don't know, he was the only guy that the Stones ever worked with. He he became this very influential uh, drummer. But outside of the stones, he didn't do much. And and there are photos or there are YouTubes of him, you know, playing along with boogie woogie uh, bands and with other jazz drummers. And he was just out along for the ride, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Greg, one of the great jazz drummers of his time. God, I mean, um, he he expends about a thousand calories for every four bars. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie expends four, ca- you know, a thousand calories maybe every four shows when <laughs> playing jazz. Yeah, you know, language. Right. <laughs> yeah, yep. you know that was Charlie. It was all. If time. you guys I ever just... get a chance, check out this friend of ours, Tim Reese, the sax player. Oh, yeah. He asked Charlie to play on his jazz album and there's charlie playing drum organ trio with larry goldings playing b3 and kicking bass yeah him playing sex and they play a swing version if you just go on youtube youtube tim reese honky tonk woman organ trio and charlie is just swinging like crazy. oh really oh yeah i've got to, i've got to check it out i've heard that i've heard yeah. about this yeah is it larry, tell- golden, who, larry golden plays with james taylor yeah, he plays the yeah. with James. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. He went up and asked him on the plane. Yeah. He said, Charlie, I've got a jazz album I'm doing. Would you <laughs> be into playing on a swing version of Honky Tonk Woman, Organ Trio? And Charlie went, I love Organ Trio. I'll play on some other stuff. Let's ask Keith. And they went back and they asked Keith. So Keith and Charlie are on this great Tim Reese album. There's a great story. Tim wrote about this and he, exactly what Greg said. So he's, he mentioned, he works up the courage to ask Charlie and Charlie's like, yeah, I, I love organ trios. Yeah, let, let's ask Keith. So he, they go down and they ask Keith. And he, I, I guess the story goes that a few minutes later, um, Keith and Ronnie come up to the front of the plane and go, we're in, you know? Oh, Ronnie uh, too? Yeah, Ronnie too. Well, I think the versions, they did the Keith, it's called the Keith version with guitar and then the organ trio, but Charlie's on both of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, got somebody else joining. It says MacBook Air. So it, it's going to be a mystery until we see their face. So hang All tight, right. gentlemen. And we are welcomed by Don McCauley. Hey! All right. Hey. All right. Welcome, Don, also known as MacBook Air. I'm going to rename you. <laughs> How are you? Good hey, to see Don. you, Don. Doing great. Doing? Thanks for joining. Anonymity Don. is key. I like how you roll, brother. So, <laughs> Steve? How are you? Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. You too. Don, say hello to Simon Kirk. Simon, 
Nice Great to see you again. And you. Yeah, man. Yeah. I have I have to tell a quick Steve Gorman story slash Bobby Keys story. So this would have been Don, I don't know, it might have been 2013, one of the shows, either like at the Echoplex or the maybe one of the Boston Garden shows. I bumped into Bobby backstage and I'm honored to say I share the same birthday as him and Keith, December 18th. You have the so license. Up on a, yeah, yeah, license to shit in the streets, you know. But uh Sagittarius, yeah. Keith's famous line, half man, half horse, license to shit in the street. But uh, ah! I, I go up to your clean living, John, enabled Keith and Bobby to to run as fast as they could. Like you had to balance that out. So your sacrifice <laughs> is duly noted. <laughs> so I I go up to Bobby and I reintroduce myself because we'd met a couple of times. And I, I said, I told him who I was. And I said, I'm a, I'm a friend of Charlie's and a, and a good friend of mine, Steve Gorman. And his, his reply was, Steve Gorman, that guy's a great drummer. And I, and I just thought, I told you about that, Steve. I think I texted you later, it, which I just thought was so great because it, not that he didn't acknowledge the fact that I was a friend of Charlie's. But when I mentioned Steve's name, he went, you had just started playing with me. And I think you had not long before that, you had texted me a picture of the back of your car. You said, these are my drums. I'm on my way to my gig tonight with Bobby keys. And I'm like, Oh yeah. my God, that's going to be amazing. You know? Yeah. I thought you anyway. were a friend of Dorothy's. <laughs> of Dor. <laughs> Dude, <Sorry>. be- <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, quick, quick side note on that regard. Bobby would d- just, everybody has Bobby stories. If you spent five minutes with him, but, the best was when he would be looking through his phone and he would find photos that he had put in there and forgot about. And he wasn't quite sure how to access them or anything, but, but he would, he would, he would find an old picture like a Polaroid. And then his son, Jesse would, would put it, you know, take a photo of a photo. So Bobby could show it to us, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. And he had pictures from like, you know, exile sessions and he had pictures from, you know, there, there was a photo of, of uh, Ringo and Keith moon with both herring headphones standing at two sets of congas and Bobby's in the background. And then we'd all say, what session is that? He'd go, hell, I don't know. (laughs) But but he had, he had a lot of those stone, you know, he had photos of, of, of those, of the 70 sessions, you know, the legendary, whatever the, you know, the South of France stuff and they're murky as hell. And it was a bad camera and all that. But, um, Mm -hmm. but Bobby would, when we started playing together, he would, never would tell me what to do or anything, but he would always laugh and say, just, it started with, well, well, man, you've been doing your homework. And I was like, how do I explain how, how much I know how to rip off Charlie Watts? I mean, like the band, you know, like my band did a really good job of that. You know, <laughs> like you have no idea. Like we, you know, I dropped out of college so I could go to stone school, basically. You know what I mean? Like you were, you know, I, I had, um, endless you know especially making our first record you know the first time really in a studio those those tracks like we have a song on our first record that's essentially sway rewritten and getting in the studio and and feeling a little in over my head and then listening back uh i would get at the same i was concurrently relaxed and more uptight listening to charlie's tracks in that setting you know what i mean it was just like oh that's all i gotta do is that (laughs) like yeah yeah (laughs) it's so simple and so easy and that started my for for all the talk about ringo's tracks or bonham or for that matter neil peart charlie 
and all this stuff we're talking about, and the thing that always blows my mind is the the conventionally straight drummer, simple fills, blah, blah, blah. His drum tracks are as identifiable as any other drummer. True. If you just take the stems, if yeah. you just put on, mm-hmm. and not just to us, a bunch of drummers, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's 30 or 40 Stones tracks that a peripheral fan, if you just play the drum track, goes, oh, that's Honky Tonk Women, or, you know, mm-hmm. oh, that's Miss You, sure. that's Shattered, that's... It go that that's uh, you know paint it black. There, I mean, there's such signature parts, and 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 you know, in live as we said, you know, they were they were uh, they bumped the tempos live, and it was all about the performance and the show and all that. But still, I'm always been blown away at how he's never talked about as such a phenomenal studio drummer and so artistic and so creative and musical. Definitely, again. You know, lot. You know, he's the engine room on stage, but in the studio, man, what a, what the simplest, most creative little. I mean, the hi hat on Angie. I mean, it's that's all you need to hear. Yeah, like that makes the song. Yeah, it's fucking unbelievable, that guy. Yeah. Well, you know, his style was was not bombastic. It wasn't like Mooney or or Bonzo, and of course, you can mix and match. None of those drummers could have yeah. sat in Charlie's stool. Uh, because they they were just I think Ringo possibly could have you know if uh, Ringo could have sub subbed for Charlie for a couple of songs their styles were pretty similar uh, but no one other than Charlie and 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 I know uh, Steve is a perfect substitute for Charlie Steve not only is a chameleon I mean he can play any style but his roots are very simple and strong and sturdy with simple fills. And, and of course, he's had this relationship with Keith for nearly 30 years and they got their friends. So it seems it was the perfect uh, uh, substitute for Charlie to come in. And of course, so that I spoke with Ronnie a couple of days ago and they all thought Charlie was going to come back. You know, he'd had a recurrence of his, um, the, the, the cancer was starting to come back and he'd gone in for treatment. Uh, so they had no idea. And Charlie said, look, you've got to honour these 13 shows. We've got all this crew, 300 crew. We can't let them down. We can't let all the fans down. So get get Steve in. Um, uh, that was the first choice. And, and uh, you know, I think Steve's wonderful. And, Greg, you saw them last week. Uh, how yeah, was it? I saw them last week at the SoFi here where the Rams play. And I, I'm just thinking of another similarity between Steve and Charlie. The first time I met Steve Jordan, I was a huge fan of his playing on Letterman and the Steve Kahn Casa Loco records and all kinds of stuff. But we were doing this tribute to Buddy Rich at the record uh, at the uh, power station in New York City. And I said something like, you should meet me over here. And he said, well, I don't. I don't have a driver's license. I don't drive. And I went, <laughs> Jordan doesn't have a driver's license. And here you are in the car with Charlie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Telling yeah. Ronnie he doesn't yeah, drive. Boom, boom, it's boom, like, boom. Boom. Wow. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. And I, I think I heard, Don, you might know better, but I think I'd heard they met way back in 78 when the Stones did Saturday Night Live and Steve was the house drummer in the, yes. in the, in the SNL band at the time. And Charlie really dug his playing and, and they sort of connected there and then through the years, like I think when it came, to, I think, as you said, Simon, or, or someone mentioned that when when Keith went to do the first Winos record, Charlie said, you should get that guy, Steve Jordan. Yeah, yeah great. that was the conversation. Yeah, that was a conversation Steve uh, had a lot, you know, coming into this was that he had already met him way back. They had already had a major relationship. And, um, and of, of course, throughout the years, you know, coming in on recording sessions and things like that. He's, uh, he's been around 
He's been yeah. around, you know, and uh, and trusted that he can he can hold his own. You he know, sure halfway three job. three quarters of the way through the night, you know. Yeah, he so. sure did a great job at the concert last week, man. It was such well, a. Which one did you go to? Did you go to the first or second? Tim Reese got uh, my kids and I tickets to the SoFi, one of the SoFi shows in L.A. Was it the first one or second one? Do you know? It was the second, I think. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That was a that was a great show. Oh, first one God. was great, but the second one really had something special. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. So great. Yeah. I think you've got this sort of perfect storm of a rejuvenated band because, you know, Steve is, I believe, uh, is only 60 in his early 60s, very fit. So he's, you know, giving them a little bit of extra muscle. You've got this uh, affection uh, and uh, for Charlie and and everyone in that stadium, uh, you know, misses him. And, And then you've got the fact that the Stones are out there on stage doing it you know for charlie and and honoring charlie it's a one i i can't wait to see them i really can't because i know i'm going to shed tears when they have the the tribute because i loved him so much and and it was came as such a shock and ronnie told me no one was allowed you know because of the covid restrictions no one could go to england for the funeral and that absolutely tore all of them up particularly keith and keith can still not speak to um a great length about Charlie still to this day because he was so uh, he loved Charlie so much and the fact that they couldn't go and say goodbye to their pal and when, when Chooch died they all down tools and flew to Michigan all of them uh, on the, the on the, on a private plane to bury Chooch that's what how tight knit a band they were that they would honor their crew because mm-hmm. Chooch had been with them for you know, decades. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it tore them up that they couldn't say goodbye to Charlie. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That was a tough, uh, tough day. Tough, tough yeah, news yeah. to get. You know. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's uh, interesting. Like just it, the number of conversations I'm sure we've all had. Um, there was just this general, almost like a conventional wisdom of, oh, they'll probably this will probably be the end of the Stones, and I. I just thought that's the exact, I mean, there's no way that's like, like you said, uh, Simon, you talk about a rejuvenation, a, a, a recommitment to now honoring Charlie. Mm-hmm. Like every time they take that stage, it's a, it's a testament to what Charlie Watts brought to that band. And that's not, um, and, and obviously that's coming from Steve, but to, to those, to the other guys, it's like that you couldn't drag them away now. That's just not possible. You know I mean? It's like, it is a, you know, it's like that. It's like an athlete. Like you know, you retire. Like I'm going to pull the plug, and then you lose your last game, and you're like, maybe I got another season in me. You know. What I mean? like, <laughs> well, you know, they, they would always Those look are to go Charlie. Out on terms. They would always exactly. look to Charlie when it came to touring, and Ronnie told me this that that Charlie, number one, being the oldest, and as we know, uh, the last year of his life he wasn't the most healthy guy they would call up charlie saying listen charlie um we're thinking of going out next year what do you say and charlie would give the thumbs up but now that charlie's no longer around yeah i think you're right steve i think you're going to see the stones for another few years they'll probably do another world tour uh it's it's not beyond the bounds of possibility i i have to go because i got an appointment in a few minutes but i want to leave you with this great charlie story yeah i went please. to see them a few years ago um 
in uh, Philadelphia. And um, they took me, you know, all through the backstage, la, la, past all the, I said hello to Ronnie in this wonderful dressing room with weed smoke and shit and fucking reggae playing and, <laughs> and five-star meals. But then you go to Keith's yeah. dressing room and it's even more palatial and he's got speakers coming out, that, you know, and everyone's like grooving. In fact, <laughs> and Keith said to me, there were so many people in his dressing room, he says, you know, Simon, I can't wait to go out on stage in front of 80,000 people for some peace and quiet. <laughs> yeah. But oh, then... Then they show me the Charlie's and Charlie's dressing room is like, you know where they keep the brooms backstage in arenas? This was Charlie's dressing room. It was tiny. It was like a cell. And he had, listen to this, drummers will appreciate this. He had a little practice pad with a pair of sticks on a small table and in um, and an orchid and an orchid, one orchid on the table and a little glass of water. Ah, oh. <laughs> and um, he was doing, you know, practice. There it is. Look at that. Yeah. Practicing paradiddles. And I said, Charlie, how are you, mate? He says, I'm fine, Simon. He says, oh, you're not drinking anymore. I said, nah. He said, would you like a glass of Perrier water? I said, thank you, Charlie. Thank you very much. So he goes and gets a Perrier. He, he doesn't drink, you know. He, so me and him have a little clink our glasses. And then from next door, we hear this. La 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 what the fuck's that? He says, Oh Mick, he's just got this bloody vocal instructor from the Royal Opera House in London, and he's on the road with us, and that's all I hear before I go on stage. La 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 la. So we sat there, me and him, and I'm just getting a little teary just thinking of that that moment. Because that was the Charlie I I really loved, and um, I'll, I'll never forget him. He was he was one of a kind. Absolutely. He was quite he was quite fond of you as well. I know that for oh, sure. He you. really was. Yeah, he talked about you quite a bit. Straight ahead rock and roll drummer, but he swings like nobody. None of those other guys. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, wow, from one swinging rocker to another, I, and you know, I was going to yeah. say. I know you have to run, Simon, but I think it's so cool that you have that memory because I, I, I think about the history that you guys have, you know, like 50 odd plus years, you know, of, of yeah. so to sort of be in that situation where you're both drinking your Perrier and, you know, and there's Mick doing his vocal warmups. It's kind of like, you know, here we are now, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the unspoken word was singers. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, gentlemen, I have to leave you. John, uh, we'll do a one-on-one soon. I look Greg, lovely to see you, brother. And you too, Steve, Simon. And you, Don. Give you as well. Everyone. Good to see you. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you, John. All the God best bless. to you. See you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Johnny, wow. can I tell my story about uh, the Tony Williams lessons thing with Charlie? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if you guys might have heard this, but my friend Tim Reese, who's playing sax, as you know, uh, he tells Charlie that his buddy from Maynard's band has been taking lessons with Tony Williams. And all of a sudden, Charlie, being the jazz aficionado that he is, he says, I want to talk to him about that. You know, so he arranges it. uh, I think it was, oh, gosh, I can't remember the year, but it was at the Mighty Duck Forum in Anaheim. Any idea what year that, like, Maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, well, sounds familiar, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, there's there's Charlie, and he's, 
Tim says, this is my friend Greg who, you know, took lessons with Tony. And he says, what was it like taking lessons with Tony Williams? And I started to tell him, and I'm, at, I'm, I'm saying we, we used to play double drums. We talked about grip. We talked about everything being from the ride cymbal and how when he got with Miles, he was 17 and he was too young to be nervous. It's not till you get a little older that you get nervous. And how he'd look out at the audience and he'd try to blip it, blip it, blip it, play a lick. And I started getting really into it. And then Steve Ferroni comes out of the right-hand corner. Charlie, what's that? And my whole story's went to, to kajoots right there. I was oh. like, oh, I can't finish my story. Thanks a lot, Steve Ferroni. No, I love Steve. But I wanted to just tell Charlie so much about it because he was so into it he just wanted to know so much about tony and yeah. elvin and roy haynes and philly joe and you know max roach that's what he really played drums for man yeah absolutely don i, I know you you have a comment i was just going to say I, I i went into great detail in the last one of these we did so i won't i won't go over you know on and on about it but he um he i think what what allowed me to sort of be led into his orbit was the fact that I, you know, all those guys were still alive when I met Charlie and, and he knew that I knew them and not, I, I think he liked me too. <laughs> I don't think it was just that, but, but the Everybody fact that, likes you, John. Well, but the fact that I, I had this sort of, you know, connection to Elvin and to Tony uh, I knew Max a little bit, you know, Louis Belson, and, and we would talk a lot about those guys and, and he was, it, it, it just, it used to blow my mind when we have some of these, when we'd have time to actually have a conversation and he'd talk about seeing some of these guys or listening to him when he was younger. And there was this, I'll, I'll shorten this story. I promise very much, but we were on a, we were had lunch together in London in 2008 and we went off and did a bunch of these um, errands that he had to run. And he was introducing me to these people uh, like the guy that makes his custom shirts and makes his custom shoes as an important man in the music business who knows Roy Haynes and Elvin Jones and all these famous drummers and, and, and the guys, you know, the guys in the shops are looking at me like, like, wow, wow, that's really great. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm here with Charlie Watts right now, you know, like those guys. Yeah. They're yeah. But he's like, this man's, he's a very important man in the music business. So it was just, <laughs> it was a really incredible day. Can anyway. that stick? Can that be part of your whole moniker? A very important man in the music business. It already is. It already, it already is. is. Well, <laughs> <It's just people. laughs> anyway, no. He would he would let you into his world, you know. He he would invite you into his world if he likes you, if he was interested in what you had to do, you know, what you were all about. And um that was that was for sure. And you'd see it, you know, he'd have his you know, he'd be drab all day, just like, oh, I gotta go through this whole massive touring and all this stuff and travel. Yeah. But as soon as you start talking about something of interest like jazz or let's go to Motown Museum or let's go do something or so-and-so is coming by or, or Tony Williams, like a conversation like that, he had this glimmer in his eye that just lit up that sort of like glazing at something, this bar of gold, you know, wow. and, uh, and then it, he'd reveal himself. Don, have you seen this Rob Shanahan photo? I have, yeah. I saw Rob last night actually in the crowd with Hillary. Oh. And, uh, and 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 he was just in he was in Keith's pit. He was looking right up and he was in you know, he had lunch, I think, with Steve as well. Yeah. And of course, yeah, of course he's taking a picture. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I this, thought Rob was gonna join us today, but I I, yeah, I, I guess saw something him. came up. I don't know. Must, must have got stuck in Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. Minneapolis. 
When His I was hometown. Playing, Charlie yeah. hadn't played a Roland kit before, and he was going, Right. Oh, yeah. I saw that. And Ringo gave him the sticks, and he's looking down like, all right. And then there's a video of him playing and having fun with it, too. I don't know if you've seen that. I have, and I have that image right there. Rob gave it to me on a small um, a small little hanging. And I love the idea that you're seeing them exchange sticks. Maybe it's oh, yes. others. But they're but they're back and forth, you know. You're the butt end of the stick, and then the and then the eight yeah. pounds, but it's like, no, you take it. No, you take it. Oh. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, I have a picture Rob gave me right after that was taken. I'll, I'm going to get. It. Hold on a How much longer are you out for, Don? Um, we are. We just added another date. We just got to Florida, and we go come back to Florida at the Seminole Hard Rock uh, the day before, two days before Thanksgiving. Wow, very good. But then, of course, next two weeks from that, I'm wrapped up and going to doing stuff related to it. But Man. yeah, we're out for a little while. We've been out for a while. It's been, you know. Where's the date you added, Don? What town? Which it's in Hollywood, Florida. Hollywood is Florida. the That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. So this is this is from that same day at Ringo's house. That's great. And uh, last week I was talking to Keltner. I was hoping he could join us today, but it's going to be a different day that Keltner's on this. And as I'm talking to him from right here, I'm looking at this picture. And I said, I'm looking at this amazing picture of you and Charlie and Ringo that Rob sent me. And he said, you know, Jim, he, he's just such a sweetheart and such a humble guy. I said, oh, man, that was an incredible day. He said, I, I, I still and this is Jim Keltner saying this. He said, I still have to pinch myself that I, I somehow I don't know how I, I met these two guys. We were all about. 30 years old at the time and, and uh, became friends. And, and they, you know, he's like, we're talking about the two greatest rock and roll drummers ever. And somehow they let me in their world. And, and we, you know, we're friends till the end. And, and, uh, and he, he got a little choked up. We've spoken a few times and he got choked up talking about Charlie. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing that that I'm just so happy that that was captured. You know, that day was, oh captured by rob you know you know johnny ringo has a story about being at a party i don't know if it was at ringo's house or at charlie's house years ago and bonham was playing on the drum kit and it, the bass drum was just sliding and there's <laughs> ringo and charlie holding back holding the bass drum yeah. and john's just playing and it's sliding oh Don, my did God. charlie ever talk about that i've, I've heard about that yeah <laughs> what does oh, he say God. about his recollection big fucking bass drum yeah, <laughs> was that at bonham's house I, I have no idea about that, but uh, but I did. He did tell me about you know his interaction with John Bottom. Uh, he's like, oh yeah, you know and that rock and roll thing, you know. And we got, of course, we got Charles Connor to come out, uh, the oh, original, yeah. you know, original guy who wrote that part, right? Yeah. And wow. um, so that was a big conversation about John Bonham, and you know, did he get it right? Oh. Uh, yeah, it was pretty wild. Wow. And Charles Connor is teaching Keltner, myself, and Charlie. The, the train the train beat but the train swing yeah which which little richard brought him down to the train station and said play you know, he's telling us the story ah. he's from louisiana and he's like yeah. we're all just like tuned right in it was incredible wow. but uh yeah he took you know a lot of conversation about john bottom that day That's and jim and jim jim had a much more in-depth relationship with him you know than yeah, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say, Steve, I, I, I remember I've, I've talked to you about this a whole bunch of times, I know, but I remember when the Black Crows, when you guys did that tour with the Stones in Europe and uh, I hadn't met Charlie yet. And I was just so 
like excited for you. And I, I remember you telling me like when you, when you, all the internal strife aside that was happening in the band in those days, when you, when you guys were all together and saw them, it like gave you like a whole new lease on life in terms of how you viewed the black crows. Like you went like, okay, guys, like this is the real shit right here. And like, all yeah, and, we had a, and for about three months, it really meant something to us. But, uh, you know, things fall apart as they do. But no, <laughs> yeah. in, but as that was happening, yeah, like I said earlier, just just being able to stand right behind them for a set behind that scrim. Um, yeah, my I, I took more than just his playing from it. It really was the he and Keith's connection. Yeah. You know, they were playing Monkey Man and Keith was just standing. He just stared at Charlie the whole time. And so. You know, Keith is three feet in front of Charlie and I'm five feet behind Charlie and I'm just watching those two guys for four minutes locked in. And it was, you know, and it was so intense at some point. I'm like, I'm thinking, is this shtick? <laughs> like, what, what is Keith doing? Like, is he taking a mental break? Like he's got his back to the crowd, but he was just so d- digging into chart. You know, he was just like floating on Charlie's water. You know what I mean? That's what he's doing. And and to see it up close, it was it it took away a lot of my um or or, or it, I took from that that I need to remove an awful lot of up to that moment I didn't realize how much ego or different you know things in my playing. It's like it's that if you find that connection you lock in, you hold on to it for dear life, you know, in the moment. Yeah. And you know, you can never, any musician, you, you don't stop learning. You don't stop being reminded of what you're there to do. But man, that lesson was hardcore. I mean, it, it hit me like a, like a, a bat to the head, you know? And, um, that, um, I, I mean, I look back now and I have for years with a little bit of regret, but at the time, like I, I said hi to Charlie a few times, you know, we'd chat for just a minute, but I was well aware of the fact that if I start a conversation with him, he's going to have me removed from the room. <laughs> like, I don't know about that. If, if <laughs> I pop this cork, man, it's going to get bad. You know, he's going to be like nice for a minute and then he's going to give that little look to somebody and I'm going to be a stick out you. older. Yeah. Don, uh, when did, Don, when did you first start working with Charlie? Uh, for the 50th anniversary, 2012 tour. 12. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and I, my, I was just thinking about what what Steve was saying about the space between Keith and Charlie, and my very first day knowing about the being involved with the Stones. I started a couple of years earlier with me and Pierre de Beauport, Keith Richards guy, uh, playing music together and living in the same town area, and uh, so he had kind of told me about it. But on day one, he put me between the two of those guys in a chair sat there for two fucking hours and saw them, saw the space between them and saw the heat that was happening between that. It's unbelievable. That is the connection, the connection. And it is right now with Steve as well with Keith, of course, but that um, on day one, that was, it does hit you over the head and it knocks you out. It changes. It changes your life to, as a drummer. Did Charlie count off all the songs and get the tempos? And does Steve do that now? Or would Keith ever start the tempos? How does that, how does that go down with starting the song? Oh, it's territorial. (laughs) It's territorial. I mean, there's Keith, Keith starts to some of his stuff. Of course, Chuck Laval does a fantastic job of keeping everybody wrangled together. Honky Tonk Woman Cowbell, right? Right. Well, yeah, even and then counting off, you know, he's got yeah. he's got everything. He's got the books 
and he's done a lot of studying. And uh, and Steve, of course, now too is starting some songs because he's feeling it from from the center, you know. And did Charlie do that too? Did Charlie start some songs on? You know, get off my cloud, things like that, which of course are, he's going to set the tempo. He's going to feel yeah. maybe a few, but yeah, you also got to understand at rehearsals that run through 80, 90 songs yeah. over five weeks, you know, three, four or five weeks. Yeah. And they'll just do like 25 or 30 for the, for the tour, you know, yeah. but they go through a lot of songs. So they'll start, you know, Oh yeah. You always used to start that off. So why don't you start it off again? Uh, and they'll try that. And if it doesn't yeah. work, Chuck's like, I got you back. You know, uh, Chuck yeah. is there for you. So it's pretty rapid. It's pretty fast. Because Ringo doesn't like counting off songs. Paul always counted the songs sure. off, so he'd rather not have to count it off. It's kind of a lot of pressure. It's yes, a lot of pressure. It is. Yeah. If you want it to be the right tempo. Yeah. Right. What's more important, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, no. it's, you know, you have that decision of, do I want the pressure or do I want to be mad for the next four minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it's a balancing act at all times. Would you like me to start this too fast or too slow? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. Well, you know, Steve, you were saying like when you guys played with them in the 90s, you know, they definitely, you know, the, a lot of the tunes were were amped up. There was definitely more more up tempo. And I I think as time went on and maybe it was Chuck Laval's influence on the band that they really seemed to dial that in much tighter. I know that when I started to go to all these shows in the late 90s, like I'd be at, at sound checks and, you know, being at a few of them. And uh, and I, I don't want to say anything out of school, but I, I would I would hear Mick comment on like if they did tumbling dice at a sound check and he'd say it, it seemed it seemed a little fast you know can we can we try it again you know and, and it's and and charlie once said to me just we were we were talking about tempos and it was when i started playing again and i was telling him i'm having a real i'm just so fixated now on tempos that i i, I make myself crazy with it you know and and he said something like he said Keith, you know, Keith, as long as long as the tempo is close, Keith is happy. But Mick, Mick seems to be a little more fixated on, yeah. on it being really. And I guess as the singer, that makes sense. But mm -hmm. but I remember we had this sort of like drummer to drummer sort of commiseration about tempos. And he said, as, as long as it's sort of in the zone, Keith, Keith is, you know, he'll he'll make it work, you know, yeah. and they can they can get their mojo going. But uh, well, I mean, so, it's it's a it's incredible to recognize i mean you said earlier don was it the first or second show in la oh that second one was special you know it's still a living breathing real band and, all the way through all the way through every every single time they play together it's uh you know they make they make the they make the most of that tempo or that five yeah they'll run with it they'll just run with it because they know the song is the song yeah. the tempo as long as it's moving I mean, it's a lot like jazz, of course. So you got to, as long as it's moving forward, and if it's not too slow, for for Mick, everybody else can play the parts yeah. very, very, very easily. I, yeah. I, I, I'm laughing because I remember the I, the last show I saw was in 2015 here in Nashville, and yeah, remember that. And uh, and um, I was I'm standing at the soundboard with my son. He'd never seen them before. He was 15 at the time, and. And they, they were, they had a great night. It was just, it was fantastic. And Chuck had told me, Chuck had actually, Chuck Lavelle had come on my radio show the day before and we're on air and he said, oh man, everyone's, it's so locked in. It's great. It's great. It's great. And we hit the commercial break and I said, so how is it really? You know, he's just, you know, you gotta, he goes, no, no, I'm not making it up. No, it's like, he goes, man, Woody is in amazing shape and he's pushing Keith now and their interplay is, you know, and we had this, so I was excited to see it even more so.
but I was watching that show that night and every time a song would start, it would fall in and, and, you know, you can't help but compare it to 72, 70, you know, you're thinking about all the different times you, every version I've ever heard of these songs played live. And there were moments when you would hear it within the first eight, 12 bars, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, they found the gear and there it is. And it stayed. Yeah. It was, it was mind blowing to me. And then on top of it, like you just said, the songs are the songs. And then I'd go, damn, they got good songs. This band's yeah. really, you know, it's like, yeah, it's I, know, I, know. But I was like, that's actually the same people. That's the, yeah. those guys made sticky fingers and they're still here. I mean, it, it's yeah. just overwhelming at times. Um, they know their songs. They know their songs very, very well. You know, yeah. like, like Keith is always listening and, and studying. I mean, they, they definitely are extremely hardworking when it comes down to excellence. Yeah. It's a, it's a job. And Char that's the one thing about Charlie too, that I think he, I think everybody knows is that he was there. He's, he was working. He was the only guy really, he was, he was the only guy really, working. you know, he was, he's always been the working drummer from day one. Yeah. So, yeah. I got to tell you, your sound out front, man. I don't, I'm not sure who your house front guy is. He's probably been there a long time, but Dave Natal. love what's his name? Dave Natal. He's he's yeah, he's the best. He's also a drummer. He's also a drummer. Oh, and he's, so he's yeah. been drumming. He was drumming before he was mixing sound, and he uh, analog, analog, one hundred percent, and nothing. No, I didn't know. But that stadium is four billion dollar, huge football in and out stadium, indoor. Too big, yeah. It sounded like a record way in the back. Yeah. It was so perfect; you could hear everything. <laughs> it's funny, but you could hear everything because when Mick came back and played the maracas, though, the maracas got a lot louder. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Mix the money. It's a huge part of the band too. A huge part of the sound. Yeah. Maracas. Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. Well, guys, I you know we we could we could go on all night and and uh, we could. I so appreciate you guys doing this today and. Joining me, Don. Thank you for. I know you just landed in Tampa, and and thanks for just landed and just coming over. And just woke up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys so much, Steve Gorman, Greg Bissonette, Don McCauley, Simon Kirk, who was here earlier. You guys are the best. Love you guys. Um, any final thoughts before I I shut us down? I, I do. I, I have one. I can't wait to get into that room. I do have one. I can't wait to get into that room. Yeah, I can't wait to have you in this room. Check it. Check out your drums. Yeah, do some training eights. Yeah. 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 Or in can my case, like training eight. seven and a half. Seven and a half. Yeah. yeah. I, I've always said, I, 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 when I when I get there, I'm I'm playing lefty by guy. I'm not leaving that room until I figure it out either. So all right, Steve. Right. We're gonna need some water, cup, some snacks. I got some work to do. You know it. And <laughs> the other room, I have plenty of right-handed drum sets set up just for you guys too. So now, as a wonderful husband, are you going to have Zildjian sticks for us or Vic Firth sticks for us? Uh, I, uh -huh. I, I I have pretty much all Vic Firth sticks in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Zildjian sticks, you know, they're 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 made by Vic Firth, you know. But I, I know that was a long time ago. So now I, I, use, I use the real things. So. <laughs> Greg, we'll tell that story another time. Okay. All right. Thank you guys so much. Guys, hang tight for well, one second. I, I will say this. I will say this for what it's worth. Um, you know, like everybody, when I saw the news, uh, John and Don, you're the first two guys I thought of. And I, I just, you know, I, we, we've, John, you and I have talked plenty uh, privately, but, you know, it's just uh, the, the, 
loss that everybody feels having this appreciation that was always there, but now is so honed and sharp, it seems. Um, you know, I, I, it, you guys have a special, I've thought a lot about you since, and um, I'm happy to see both of you. And uh, I'm going to see you in Atlanta in a couple weeks. And uh, great. Oh, great. Um, you know, I'm, you know, it's a, uh, it's, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, I've thought about you guys a lot. I know it's a, it's a very it, much more than I felt, you know, a personal one. So my condolences. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. I, and I appreciated you reaching out when you did. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Look forward to seeing and you. Greg, uh, as, as, Greg, as per usual, my thoughts with you are just, you know, this has been more than enough time. And, uh, <laughs> Still got that you know, girl stare drum? That's her always great. You know what I mean? Those, those first three, four minutes with Greg are always a joy. You know, man. <laughs> we'll play it out. We'll play, do some play out music. Oh. We love you. Yeah. Love you guys too. Thank you guys so much. This has been so great. Steve Gorman, Greg Bissonette, Don McCauley. See you. Thank Greg you guys. Cheers, guys. I'll see you guys soon. See ya. Hey, guys. Bye bye.